From Vancouver Island, the lower mainland of BC, and Las Vegas, Nevada, this is In Goal Radio, the podcast, presented by the Hockey Shop Source for Sports Surrey, thehockeyshop.com. We have a lot to get to today, including the conference championships in the National Hockey League, some goaltending coaching news to bring you. We also have a couple of uh, opportunities uh, for you straight ahead. And our feature interview this week involves somebody that is very familiar to Kevin Woodley, but is uh, in a different organization right now and has done a great job recently of putting the building blocks back into his game and uh, somebody that I quite frankly am cheering for big time. And that is Corey Schneider. Uh, Our gear segment is the access to Chesty, which uh, you will be Fascinated to hear about all the advancements that they've done there as we bring in the co-founders of Ingle Magazine, Kevin Woodley and David Hutchison. And Hutch, I'm going to give you first goal right now. Uh, what's happening on the island right now? It, it, is, is the schedule catching up to normalcy in the whole minor hockey, junior hockey uh, world where the seasons are wrapping up and you can kind of see training camp going? Because it, it's been all over the place. I don't think it ever stops. Hockey's a 12-month season now. I mean, I know everybody talks about get your kid doing other things, and but I know all sorts of kids that have been going to junior A camps and junior B camps, trying to find their way onto a roster for next year. I've been helping out doing some evaluations for some AAA teams in town at the Bantam through Midget levels. There's just hockey, hockey, hockey. Wow. So, so it's really busy, but, um, a fun busy. I like it when things are kind of crazy. Yeah. yeah it's fun you know busy what? Cause we are kind of normal, uh, normal ish compared to the last couple of summers. Less. Yeah. Uh, no, marks. isn't that true? Isn't that true? It's really, really nice to be normal in that sense. And finally kids getting a chance to do what they love to do without anything interrupting it. Uh, speaking of normal. Oh, wait, uh, we're going to go to Kevin Woodley now. So we can't speak of normal, not normal. Yeah. No. How are you? Uh, I thought you were just happy to see, and of course, because we do actually see each other when we're recording this, thanks to the miracle of Zoom, everybody else just hears us, we actually see it. I thought you were just going to say you're happy to see I look normal because I have my tooth back in. So that's good. That's progress. I don't know how normal it is. I keep seeing it pop out and go back in and pop out. He's like an old man playing with his dentures right now. He's Bobby Clark. A little... Yeah, I got a little bit of that habit, like something new in the mouth. They're always fiddling <laughs> with it. So, yeah, it's um, got to make sure I don't do it when I'm out in public, though. That might freak a few people out. It's a terrible segue, but uh, your, your new tooth is like uh, you're experiencing what they go through every day at the the hockey shop, Source for Sports Surrey. It's a great segue because it's exactly what I do every time I go there, Darren. New things, I got to play with them, um, just like the fake tooth in my mouth. It's always coming in and out. The gloves are always coming on and off the walls. Well, actually, truth be told, I just take them off the walls. I try and keep Cam busy. That's his job is to put them back on the wall when I'm done or back in the proper spot. And let me tell you, there is a ton of new stuff to play with at the Hockey Shop Source for Sports right now. We've discussed some of it already here on the podcast in our new gear segments, the Axis 2 line, the new Bauer Mock line. Uh, the new Bauer Mock Stick. We've got the Axis 2 Chesty coming up later today. All of these items in stock. I know they've got the new Bauer Chest Protector, Mock Chest Protector that we're going to review in a couple of weeks. Everything is starting to come in. And the thing is, it's also starting to fly off the shelves. New Bauer Mock Sticks, they got a huge shipment of those. Um, so make sure you check them out online or in person at thehockeyshop.com or in Surrey 
to check out for your sizes, your selection, what you need to help you with your game. They've got it. And, you know, it's funny because we we focus on the pro lines so often. We'll get into the second price point lines as well. That includes the lower price point sticks from both Bauer and CCM, uh, the M5 Pro pads and gloves that Bauer offers up, uh, a second price point line that is pushing the envelope for what second price point is. A lot of pro qualities there. We'll get into that as well. Uh, there's just so much new stuff at the hockey shop. The Hockey Shop Source for Sports and thehockeyshop.com. Last time I was in there was to actually meet one of our listeners. It was a Saturday morning. Um, they'd come in from out of town. Aiden Shaw, one more shout out for getting your dad to drag you there by using the podcast as leverage. Uh, it was packed in there, and it's going to be packed in there the rest of the summer as everybody goes to the experts to find the latest gear and which one of those latest gear items fits their game best. Make sure you check them out. And the best part is if you don't live in the lower mainland, you can still participate and in, in, uh, check out the hockey shop by uh, going to the hockeyshop.com. And the same goes for Pete Fry, the Mindset Guy seminar. If you can't get there and participate firsthand, you're still able to get involved, uh, Hutch. Absolutely are. So if you're not familiar, we are presenting a one-day workshop with uh, Pete Fry, the goalie mindset guy. You've heard him on the podcast. You've seen him at ingoalmag.com. He works with goaltenders from the youngest in the game all the way up to pros. And uh, he's really dynamic, uh, incredibly positive guy. And I, I called it a workshop because it's going to be hands-on. It's a chance to listen to Pete for a few minutes and then try something really tangible that's going to help your goaltending. And, and it's going to sort of go back and forth in a pretty dynamic day. And as you said, Darren, you can check it out from anywhere in the world. Uh, I know Pete sent me a note this morning. Somebody had registered uh, from California. I think it was an InGoal member because InGoal members, InGoal Premium Annual members, uh, get a discount on the on the uh, workshop. We want to pass some of uh, what we can on to people because we just love that people have joined the InGoal family as members. And um, I think somebody will probably be joining us from Prince Edward Island on the day as well, I've heard. So just a great chance. But also, if you live in Vancouver or anywhere close, uh, come and join us for the day. I think somebody's even coming in from Calgary for the day. And uh, just a chance to sit down, talk goaltending with Pete, with your fellow goaltenders, with some really great goaltenders that have got a lot of experience that they're happy to share and uh and woody and i will probably be hiding behind a camera somewhere because i'm a little bit shy but i'll talk to you too nice i, I look yeah. forward to it. it 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 sounds fascinating and fun uh the workshop part of it it's uh adds the intrigue uh, it's not just two hours of listening to your computer not at all in, in full day or really it's gonna it's gonna be yeah it's not just two hours it's a full day and uh it's gonna be busy 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 if you haven't yet please go check out uh, our social pages or you can go to ingolmag.com and you'll get a chance to register and join us on the day we'd love to have you don't forget discount for ingol premium members yes and uh, we are uh, always uh, looking for the new stuff that's coming in from uh, the ingolmag.com for uh, premium members uh, all the reads all all this beautiful uh, uh, lessons and or drills uh, that are up there it's outstanding uh, to be able to grow your game because you're never finished. Even if you're 40 plus years old, like Mike Smith, you're always trying to adapt. The question is, does Mike Smith take a step 
back after his uh, playoff run with the Edmonton Oilers. He made a couple of suggestions that he's on the fence, even though he's got another year left on his contract, Woody. Yeah, and despite being an over-35 contract, it's structured in a way that if he were to retire, as some in Edmonton who seem close to the team have suggested is coming, um, and as it, you're right, it did sort of sound like he, he was at least thinking about it, uh, it won't count against the cap for the Edmonton Oilers, so they'd essentially get to start from scratch with their goaltenders. I mean, Stuart Skinner's kind of projected for a backup role, but uh, with Miko Koskinen leaving as a UFA, if Mike decides to retire... Uh, it's wide open to go out and get a number one. I'm not sure it's the deepest market we've seen in terms of free agency for that. Like last year might have been the year to, to to make that type of move. And, you know, we've seen the Oilers be involved. But at the same time, like they've tried to get Jacob Markstrom two years ago. They were hot and heavy on that path and, and chasing it with big money. Am I wrong? Or did Mike Smith outplay Jacob Markstrom in the second round of the Stanley Cup playoff? Like... Not that it was necessarily a goalie win series, but there was one game out of the five where a goalie stole a win, and that was Mike Smith in game three. So it's just, I get where it comes from. The focus on goaltending gets so extreme as we get down to the final four. Like everybody is picking nits, every little detail. I mean, Andre Vasilevsky, it's funny. Because even we, like I fell into it. Like we're looking at the numbers. Everybody's talking about the blocker side. This is a guy with two Stanley Cups already, and I was reminded during a conversation last night, actually, with an NHL goalie for for another story I'm working on, we just got to talking about Shesterkin Vasilevsky, and not only was he like, listen, like I know shiny new toy, Kevin, me, I'm a bit of a contrarian, so maybe I've been like ready, just as we were ready to anoint, I think we were probably the first ones to call Vasilevsky the best in the world ahead of Carey Price, like that temptation to want to go with the shiny new toy and call Shesterkin the best goalie in the world. This goalie, this NHL peer, said that not only is Vasilevsky Hill the best goalie in the world, he thinks he might be the best goalie all time. And this is a this is another NHL goaltender. Like so, that's pretty high praise. Um, and I I just think that we start to look for things as the playoffs go on. So many media members, so many everybody's sort of trying to look for. You know, I mean, I'm part of it too. When we used to do the breakdowns at NHL.com, looking for details that you could take advantage of. Goalie coaches trying to exploit things. And yeah, the Western Conference Finals didn't go great for Mike Smith. But the list of goalies, guess how long the list of goalies is that have better better save percentages relative to shot quality, so adjusted save percentage, than Mike Smith over the past two regular seasons. Including past this two year. Regular seasons? Past two combined. I wanted to go two including this year with all the ups and downs and the struggles coming back from injury and taking a long time to find his game. How many goalies in the NHL, as Ken Holland tells us, it's hard to find a real number one. How many do you think have better numbers than Mike Smith the last two years? I would have said it was longer-ish, but you seem to be intimating that it's quite surprising. I'm going five. Ooh. Ooh, Hutches. Hutches. I I was going longer than that. We could probably qualify it and get down to five. Um, just using the a threshold of 250 chances against, which is probably a little low for two seasons, it's eight. And if you bump that threshold wow. up, because one of the names on that list, Darren, is actually Logan Thompson with the Vegas Golden Knights. That's how good he's been in a very small appearance, but probably not enough of a sample size to include him. So bump him off the list. We're down to seven. Bump Philly Huso off the list, who's only been in the NHL for one season. We're down to six. 
Uh, Igor Shesterkin, Thatcher Demko, Andre Vasilevsky, Ilya Sorokin, UC Saros, and Marc-Andre Fleury are the only goalies with a better adjusted save percentage than Mike Smith over the past two regular seasons. Yeah, that's a league so, company in the National Hockey League. It is, and and I'm not putting, I'm not saying he's a top ten NHL goaltender. Don't everybody fire up their emails to roast me. I'm just telling you that replacing him and expecting an improvement uh, as significant as fans and media in Edmonton seem to be suggesting needs to happen and has to happen this off season from their goaltending. It's just not going to be as easy as a lot of people think because it's a pretty short list of goalies that have had that level of success. Uh, in the NHL, as much as you know, the Western Conference Final didn't go their way. Let's not forget the Edmonton Oilers in Game Two and Three of that series. The McDavid Drysital Edmonton Oilers had zero high danger chances in Game Two and only three in Game Three. Like two games combined. Not the issue there. Yeah, I don't. I I don't know that it's necessarily goaltending on a lot of fronts. And I get it. Listen, there were moments, there were goals, there are things he does that they look awkward at times and it leads to criticism and he's easy to criticize. He's always been an easy target. There's an intensity there. There is times he tries to do too much handling the puck. There's no question. Puck handling went from a strength to something that other teams were making. I don't know if weakness is fair, but they were clearly taking away. It was no longer a strength in the playoffs, especially in that conference final. Um, but at the end of the day, I like, I'm just, I guess I'm spinning my tires here a little bit and rambling, but but at the end of the day, I just think there is not going to be as easy as most seem to make out um, to replace an upgrade on Mike Smith. Most seem to think it's like a no-brainer. Just go get anybody off this list of free agents, and you've improved your goaltending. Numbers tell me it's not that simple. Two observations. One, I was surprised that people weren't able, and this is three teams, to take advantage of him playing so deep in his net. I, I thought in a playoff series, that would be really targeted and somebody would find a, a way to take advantage of it. It didn't happen. So there goes uh, uh, the the theory that uh, he does play uh, too deep and he's susceptible to it. The other one is, I, I don't know how much he can play in a single season. That would be my big concern for, for him right now. Even with all the numbers that are great, can he can he play 50-50? Is, is that possible? And then still be able to carry in the playoffs and play every game. I think the second half of that is where that's a fair question. Like, I, I don't think anybody expects him to be a 50-game starter in the regular season, and that provides a bit of a conundrum next season for the Edmonton Oilers because if Stuart Skinner is your 1B, um, you're asking a lot for him to not only... Like, ideally, he steps in and plays 25 games in a backup role. If you want more, you're bringing with it the uncertainty of how he handles that. It's just a little less margin for error if he's, if he's in fact, your, your second option. Because you need a second option with Mike. You, you're right. You can't overplay him. And that's where it becomes a fair question in the playoffs, Darren. Like, I thought that they would be fine because they took care of Calgary in five days. And I think internally, they were worried about it if that series had gone on where Mike would be in terms of needing a break. But because they ended that one so fast, because they got that break, I thought he'd be okay. And yet... By the time things ended and, you know, just the nature of how hard you have to work against the Colorado Avalanche, especially like game one, I know he got pulled early, but like it wasn't just the chances and the quality, it was the possession time. I mean, we've all been there, right? As a goaltender, you know what hurts the legs the most, what leaves you gasping quickest. Uh, It's power plays or extended offensive zone time where they're passing it around. And every time they make a pass, you got to push, stop, set, square, ready. Like it's just a lot of work up, down, into the post, out of the post. And I thought the Avs, especially early in that season, 
were putting on a puck possession clinic uh, in that series that would leave any goaltender gassed. And certainly one in his 40s, it looked like maybe it wore, wore him down a little bit as time went on. Hutch, my, my comment about playing on the goal line was a compliment mm-hmm. to him. Like, I, I think he proved to everybody that he can do that even in a play, playoff series uh, because I, I, he plays so deep. It's shocking all the time. I, I don't know. Like, he's, I mean, he's, he's had a whole career of it. So yeah. I don't know that we, we need this playoff round to, to prove something. I did. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, I, well just because the game's changed. I, I, I thought they would, uh, the scoring is up so much that that I, he I would guess, be but but one of the ways the game has changed is that it's become much more lateral. So advantage Smitty by playing a little bit deeper yeah. in in that respect, and uh, you don't have to get those old legs across the crease quite as far when you're playing deep. But uh, you know, um, how many clear sighted shots are there? Because that's where maybe you could exploit that. And I would even say that Smitty does a pretty good job of picking his spots to get out of the net a little bit more. And being a little bit more strategic uh, about that, so I don't know. I that didn't really shock me as much as I think it did everybody, buddy else. I think he's it's one of his strengths that he's able to manage that. I, I Woody, I'm just curious, and and I don't want to you know beat a dead horse here or anything, but um, you've brought up the point before that we can measure the impact of some quote unquote bad goals, and that's the sort of seems to be the narrative that people won't let go with Mike. Oh, you know, he makes a lot of saves, but any any of your data have anything to say about that and the impact that some of those sort of tricky tricky ones that got by him might have? Well, interestingly enough, I like I, I'm just sort of looking it up as fast as I can as you asked me that. It put me on the spot, didn't have the spreadsheet up in front of me, didn't have the site up in front of me from ClearSight, but I would never you know, some put you of on the, the spot. I do think some of it comes back to that puck handling. Like even if the goal itself ended up being a good chance, um, pucks that ended up in the net within you know minutes or seconds of a puck handling turnover that failed to clear the zone um, certainly becomes part of this narrative. Like I've I've seen you know there's some numbers that were online. Uh, Corey Schneider, um, not the one we interviewed today, a different one. I believe it's S Z N A. J-D-E-R on Twitter uh, does a lot of manual tracking and he he posted a graph that I know mm-hmm. caught all our attention where Mike in the playoffs averaged the most amount of touches at eight a game, which frankly to me feels light. So I wonder yeah. what the I wonder what the um, parameters were behind it. I'm, I'm not I'm not second guessing him. I'm just just curious. No, his explanation was that he didn't count chances without forecheck pressure but who knows what that definition is yeah forecheck pressure like does a guy have to be below circles because i think one of the things we saw against mike so anyways the chart did say that he handled it the most and had the lowest success rate in terms of zone exits and i know like i said i've had a look at the regular season numbers from both the oilers and the flames in terms of how they measure his impact and it's always positive but in the playoffs teams pay attention to these things they're not just going to go straight at him uh, I think we saw a lot of instances where rather than going at Mike and pressuring him, they actually just went to the walls and took away his outlet valves. Like his defensemen don't come back to him as often either. They go to spots for him to pass and teams were cognizant of that and cognizant of taking that away. And all of a sudden, now you're behind the net as a puck handling goalie, a little extra second to have a look. The places where you're supposed to pass to are taken away and you've got to make tougher decisions. I thought there were times where he got out and played pucks where you know, a lot of people will be like, just leave it, just leave it. Like the one that hit the referee there, everyone has the picture of him in the corner. And it's like, if it doesn't hit the referee, we're not having that conversation. He's always going to go out and play that puck, but there's certainly a risk reward there that he got caught on the wrong side of more often in the playoffs. And I'm not so sure that that isn't a function 
of the way teams take away that skill and that skill set for him more purposely in a seven game series than they ever would when it's just one of 82 on the calendar, you know, Edmonton on Tuesday, Vancouver on Wednesday, Hey guys, don't do this. And nobody's really paying attention to it. So that's, that's part of it in terms of the actual stopping pucks hutch. Um, when I look at low danger chances, uh, in the Stanley cup playoffs, um, and, you know, sort of sort it for, you know, that, that is definitely an issue. Um, he gave up nine low danger goals, uh, in the Stanley cup playoffs function of that a little bit is the amount of chances nobody faced has faced more low percentage chances in the playoffs, uh, than Mike Smith, I guess Shesterkin's catching him right now, but the difference would be on 364, Igor has given up one on 346. Actually, he did catch him. So 346, the second most Mike gave up nine. So you're right. We've, we've seen that number. Low percentage goals, your team loses the game 87% of the time unless the other goalie reciprocates and gives up a low percentage one of his own. So nine through three rounds is definitely problematic for Mike Smith. That is fascinating stuff that you can dissect it to, to that level. Uh, Hutch, that's a great question. I uh, love it. Too. I've got another analytic question for Kevin okay. just while we're at it because you mentioned that are you the, ready for me to talk for 10 minutes while i do the search oh i'm so used to it it's okay uh, i need a nap you mentioned that the list of ufa options is pretty small i agree but one of the names that would be near the top of many lists i would think would be Vili huso because of the great regular season he put together and uh taking the starters role for a time from jordan binnington so what happens if you put Vili huso into the edmonton oilers net well, actually, I think we've been pretty critical of the way the St. Louis Blues defended and that narrative that they're a good defensive team, frankly, is a bunch of hogwash. Matter of fact, I saw an article on Sportsnet this week, not to call anybody out, but they had a scout breaking down the list of unrestricted free agent goalies. And the scout's take was that I'd be worried about Billy Huso elsewhere because he plays behind such a structured system in St. Louis. And I damn near spit my coffee all over my keyboard as I was reading it because I'm like, St. Louis was one of the worst defensive teams in hockey this year. They lean so hard on their goaltending. We've seen, you've heard me talk about this in regards to Jordan Bennington uh, and how he wasn't as bad as some of the raw numbers suggest because they were so porous in front of him. Billy Huso had a season that was almost Igor Shesterkin like in terms of his ability to produce results behind such a horse poop defensive team. Um, so yeah, I actually think that going to Edmonton, he'd be playing behind better defensive structure, particularly since Jay Woodcroft took over. So I see that as a potential fit. I can't help but wonder, guys, as I look at this, um, and I, God, now watch, it's going to get, I'm going to find out this scout's like, it was actually like an NHL goalie coach and I'm never going to hear the end of this. The, but it was the name is listed in the article. I may have read the article this morning and i may have just tossed you a softball oh and so now i just absolutely roasted a scout who's actually listed in the article i thought it was anonymous scout sorry um um i i don't care that's bad those are bad numbers if you if you still believe that the st louis blues are a great defensive team um you need to check check any analytics company like uh it, they're just not sorry did that um, change so, in the yeah. playoffs did that change in the playoffs? It, got, it definitely got better. Three games. Interestingly enough, the three games that Billy Huso played in the Minnesota series, the first three, they played right to their identity. They were terrible. His expected save percentage was in the 870s through those first three games. They did have evidently a come to Jesus meeting with Craig Berube, and they got a lot better from there on out. 
they did tighten things up. Jordan Biddington was a beneficiary of that, although he played exceptionally well and well above expected in the games, which brings me to my other point, and that's in this conversation about St. Louis and Huso, like if there are questions about Billy Huso around the league based on his playoffs, even if the first three games of the playoffs weren't necessarily uh, a fair measuring stick because of how poorly St. Louis defended for him, if those questions exist, and if we know that St. Louis, and we've heard this, you know, throughout the year as he took over the job, like they always believed in this guy. Like if their belief in Billy Huso's ability is greater than anybody else's, is it possible that he might not find both comfort and maybe not quite the best deal because all it takes is one team that sees him as a star to, to come out of their boots? Is it possible that St. Louis might be the team that see, like if they see him as the best fit and see him in sort of the brightest light compared to other teams that have questions, is it possible that they might not be the team most willing to re-sign him? And could we see Jordan Bennington on the open market? And as I've said to you before, um, for all the spotlight he commands, some of it negative, um, just because of the antics, right down to the water bottle of Kadri in the playoffs, um, his numbers have remained really good, really steady. There were some dips this year after he lost the job, but he showed in the playoffs what he's capable of. I think you put him behind a better defensive team and you get right what you got when he won a Stanley Cup, that Jordan Bennington. If you could, if I was a team, like as Ken Holland said, there aren't a lot of number ones out there. I believe that Jordan Bennington still is that number one quality of goaltender. Um, and if the Blues are inclined to take Huso instead, might he be available compared to having to go shop on uh, a guy like Billy Huso with a lot, lot less of a track record? and maybe a little more uncertainty for other teams. I'm, I'm fascinated to see how this market plays out. I don't have the answer. It's just something that jumps into my head because I, I think St. Louis's belief in Huso might be greater than a lot of the other teams that might start chasing. Got a gear segment coming up uh, with Cam and Woody, uh, the access to Chesty uh, brought to you by the Hockey Shop, source for Sports Surrey, thehockeyshop.com. And our feature interview this week is Corey Schneider. Uh, he catches up uh, with, uh, with Woody. Uh, brought to you by Sensorina, and that is a fascinating conversation. Uh, still with the uh, the Western Conference and that series with Edmonton, uh, Colorado moves on. Uh, who do you start in Game 1 of the Stanley Cup Final? Or who do you predict they will start, Hutch, in Game 1 of the Stanley Cup Final? Pavel or Darcy, uh, given that uh, they both played uh, key roles at different times during this postseason? And, of course, the big question is, how is Darcy? Well, he backed up, so I think he's going to be okay. I know, but we've, we, you know, recently we've seen a few cases where teams have said so and so is okay to back up, just not to start. Yeah, which I I find bizarre. I think if you're backing up, you have to be ready to get in the game and play. So, uh, assuming that he's healthy, I still think they probably go back to Pavel. Um, nothing against Darcy, but coaches just have this tendency to go with what's working and to just. But I, I also expect the change to Darcy might happen fairly quickly if if they didn't keep winning. Woody, do you have a? I, I actually lean the other way. I could be wrong Attaboy on this. Woody. I think I, I think I think if uh, Pavel Francouz slams that door shut in Game Four, this might be a different conversation. Um, but he didn't. Obviously, they win that game. What six five in overtime? Five four. I lost track of all the goals in that between Game One and Game Four. Um, and and I just think it's 
It's not about who's better. As long as Darcy's healthy, as long as his vision is where it's supposed to be and he shows that in practice, I think it's easier to go into that series just sort of status quo because Pavel coming in for Darcy should things go poorly is something they've done all year. Is something that he's done in these playoffs successfully, whereas the other way around and how Darcy reacts to it, as much as I think it would be water off a duck's back for Darcy, like I don't think he's going to be sitting there. He doesn't have the personality that's going to get bent out of shape by not starting. Um, that's certainly not what I'm saying. But there's there's some sort of element of we've been there, done this before with that order of things. To me, and I also think the Avalanche are built for a team that doesn't necessarily need elite. They just need steady goaltending to win. Although that obviously in the under the glare of a Stanley Cup final could get interesting if the guy at the other ends, Vasilevsky with two cups already, or even Igor Shesterkin about to win a Vesna and, and heavily reliant on goaltending. Um, so maybe it doesn't matter. And maybe that makes it a lot easier. But I that's the way I think they'll go. To me, the bigger conversation is how do they manage this break? Like this is a monster break. This, depending on whether that other series goes seven, could be as much as I believe 15 days by the time it starts going to be minimum, I think, 12. The longest breaks we've seen in NHL history heading into a Stanley Cup final is 11 days previously. And so this is a little bit of uncharted territory. I had a good conversation with our friend J.S. Jaguar for a story about it yesterday. Um, and he, you know, he talked about how it's, um, it's something you have to be very cognizant in terms of how you manage to find that balance because you're going to have rust for the first 10 minutes, but it can't be the first full game and it sure as hell can't go past one game. Like, so you have to find your game and don't forget these are starters. Um, and maybe this speaks to Franco's being a better choice because he's used to going a couple weeks between starts, but for number one guys to sit like that and then have to be on rhythm, like not all guys are, not all the guys are going to be able to, to manage that. I talked to Billy Ranford about it a little bit too, on how they managed that with Jonathan quick in 2012. They went, eight or nine days between the end of the conference final and the start of the Stanley Cup. So um, it's an interesting question. Also, I was this is another one that Jiggy brought up. Um, never being in a cup final before. He felt like it was a real advantage for Martin Brodeur in 2003 because he'd been there, done that. And by the time he got to 2007, he's like, I knew I had an advantage on Ray Emery because I knew what to expect and he didn't. It's all the extra media. It's your hometown media. It's your home country media. It's all the focus, all the spotlight, all the questions. People coming up, families coming in from out of town, people coming out of the woodwork you haven't heard from in 10 years, wondering how you're doing and, oh, hey, can I get tickets to the Stanley Cup final? Like he said, it's a lot. And if you haven't done it before, it's a bit of a challenge. So that adds to the equation, especially if it's Vasilevsky at the other end coming out of the East. And we've got this guy who's been through that the last two years in a row and knows how to manage it versus a couple of guys on the other end who have never had to deal with it. Darcy's got some experience, world championships, things like that. Um, but nothing's like, a, there's, there's not, we talked about it at the beginning of this, right? The focus on the goalies and picking apart the weaknesses. Like the longer you go, the more that stuff happens in the spotlight. By the time you get to the Stanley Cup final, whether it's Andre Vasilevsky on the blocker or Corey Crawford's glove, it inevitably becomes so bright that it's hard to treat it. As Jiggy said, Every other round is different. Like the Stanley Cup final is a whole different ball game, and you have to make some adjustments there in terms of how you manage yourself in that environment. Uh, Rangers and Bolts have had a lot of time to do their pre-scout on the Colorado Avalanche. That is one thing that uh, will be uh, for certain. Uh, We've got uh, some goalie coaching news in the National Hockey League. Uh, Bring us up to date with what's happening in the carousel of coaching, Woody. 
Well, kind of interesting. Um, I guess not a surprise. I'd heard rumblings that um, the Maple Leafs had sort of pledged a contract extension was coming all season for Steve Briere. And when the year ends and that contract extension that was supposed to be there still hasn't been delivered, uh, it was a, a job that I had sort of earmarked as maybe opening up. And sure enough, it has. Um, so sorry to hear that news for Steve Briere, who I think is one of the one of the good coaches in the league. And um, I guess just... I. I I don't know that we haven't heard them talk, speak on it uh, in terms of why they felt that move was necessary. I do find it kind of a little bit ironic that I've seen a lot of people in Leafs land suggesting they go out now and get Mitch Korn and make him a director of goaltending. There is talk the Leafs will finally build a department for all the money they've sunk into analytics and coaching and skills everywhere else. Uh, I think their goalie department has run a little thin. Uh, especially since Brian DeCord left as a goalie-specific scout. I'm not sure they've even ever replaced him, uh, although don't hold me to that. Um, you know, it's just, it, there's three openings now, um, and there may be more coming. Uh, we we heard about Mike Rosati in Vegas as a possible fourth opening. He'll interview with the new head coach there, but not necessarily locked into a job with his contract expiring, so that's a possibility. Seattle, we know, is open, uh, both in the NHL and at the American League level, and who wouldn't want to work in Palm Springs? site of their new affiliate. Detroit is open with the Red Wings moving on from Jeff Salako, Um, and now obviously Toronto. So I'm curious to see. The one thing that I always wonder about in these things is we know who makes the hire. Sometimes it's the coach. Vegas sounds like they'll let the head coach decide. But in a lot of cases, especially when you're talking about hiring a director of goaltending, like with all due respect to the management, and in some cases we're talking about Hall of Flame players in Toronto, in Detroit, actually all three, Seattle, Ron Francis, Steve Eiserman, and Brendan Shanahan, at least part of that brain trust in Toronto making these decisions. What do they know about goaltending? Like who's telling them what questions to ask and what to look for when they're making this hire? Like, do they understand the position and the way it's going? Do they understand the evolution? Can they tell the difference between a guy who's developing and coaching and teaching Versus a guy who's just running drills. Um, how? What questions do they ask? Do they know what the answers sound like? Uh, I, I'm just curious. I, I'm sure they have people they lean on. But it's sometimes when I see the decisions that get made, I wonder about who those people are um, because they leave me scratching my head. And lastly, on the goalie coaching carousel, is this the year we see someone from Europe get a shot? Colorado Avalanche are in the Stanley Cup final with UC Parkilla as their goalie coach. First uh, international, well, I guess Archer Zerbe had a shot for a little while, but for the most part, sort of the first Finnish goalie coach in the National Hockey League. Um, and he's now in the Stanley Cup final. Uh, could we see? We had Marco Terranius on last week. Um, we had Maciej Schvo, uh from Sweden on the week before, both sort of talking about they'd like an opportunity to come over. Um, could this be the summer where more teams start to look in that direction to countries where goalie development, frankly, um, you know, has a track record that might be better than a lot of uh, what's going on here in North America. Uh, one of the names that Marco Terranius mentioned in our interview, and he always stresses this every time I talk to him about uh, Igor Shishterkin and his work with him at Sky in KHL, is uh, Rashid Davidov uh, from from Russia. And when you start to dig into the work that Rashid's done, um, training with Igor Shosturkin every summer, Ilya Sorokin, some time with uh, Andre Vasilevsky as well. The names that come out of Russia, a lot of them are working with him in the offseason. Um, he's not working for a KHL team right now. Is that a name that we could see 
in the near future come over to the NHL. I'd be very curious. I guess Russia's a tougher market to go get somebody out of right now, given what's going on in the world. Uh, but certainly, there are options outside of North America, and I'm curious to see if any team's going to be progressive enough to pursue some of those names or at least conversations with some of those names, or do we just get the same old, same old spinning of the wheels um, with the same names? Not that some of them aren't like super qualified, um, but I'm just kind of curious to see how this proceeds this summer. With all that up in the air, let's put the uh, things back on the axis with the gear segment brought to you by Source for Sports Surrey, the hockey shop, thehockeyshop.com. Uh, Woody, dealing with the access to Chesty. Looking forward to this. Yes, um, as am I. A product that we weren't all that familiar with uh, coming out. We had a first look at it actually at the hockey shop uh, with Cam. And so a lot of positives that we like. Uh, let's get into it. The whole Axis line is launching. You obviously check out our review of the pads and glove. Uh, our overview, I should say. We'll have an updated review in the coming weeks with a little more sort of user feedback. Uh, but our overview with CCM on the Axis 2 is online and free for anyone at ingoldmag.com. And the only place we don't have a full review up on this chest, so the only place you can find it is on YouTube uh, or right here on the Ingold Radio podcast with me and Cam at the hockey shop. Welcome back to the Hockey Shop Source for Sports, where it is standing room only today for the debut of the new Axis 2 chest protector. We've got a large crowd here to watch us talk about and stand up as we do. Audience, please, a little applause. See, we actually have a crowd here watching. Holy smokes. Uh, live performance, try not to yeah, get nervous. In front of a live studio audience today. I know how you choke when the pressure's on, so try not to screw no, this up. No, not but. at all. Access there's the choke right there. So. Access 2. Haven't seen it. Uh, this is first for us. We haven't actually had a chance to walk through this with CCM yet. So you explain to me what's new on the Access 2 chest protector. I can tell you from a mobility, fit, and feel standpoint, um, I like it out of the box. Tell me what's new. What's changed besides what's obvious? So really focusing in on that initial fit right out of the box. So one of the things that we have seen from, you know, Previous chest protectors in the past, you know, whether it be the Premier or even the Axis 1, has been that stiffness kind of blocky feel. Now, Axis 2 really focused, again, on that mobility and feel right out of the box. You can see Kevin has been moving around. He feels comfortable kind of right out of the box. A um, couple key features that I really like, starting out with the profile of the chest itself, the shoulder floaters rounded, more up against the body, but we haven't lost any of the width of the chest protector itself. Uh, one of the things with the Axis, uh, original actual was kind of puffed up a little bit much, kind of gave a little bit of that, you know, hunchback style of a fit, whereas this is a little bit more tapered, a little bit more rounded. This will help increase mobility, especially on those upper shots and feel-wise. We can see Kevin can get his arms up quite easily. Lots of adjustment there, lots of great feel, but again, haven't sacrificed that overall profile and fit of the chest. D3O makes its return into the heart guard itself. So we're making sure that Kevin's nice and padded right up in the front, especially the hard area of the chest protector itself. Great for absorption of that puck and helping to cradle it as it comes in. I like how these kind of they fold over each other almost for, for a cradle. We can see how those shoulder floaters don't get in the way when he does that. So some of those other chests, you'll see that kind of fold up and prevent you from getting yeah, that. Yeah, we, we always like do things like, oh, can I, can I drink a coffee? Can I? move my hat and do my hair. But the truth is what you want to really be able to do is make sure you can get your hands out in front and move around like that and hit Cam in the face. Single the hand cradle. So moving down a little bit further from the chest, down into the lower body, TCM has adjusted their actual lower belly portion of the chest itself. What's it called, Cam? Belly adjustable floater. 
Adapt Flex. Adapt Flex. Hey, there you go. You get plus one point. What that actually means, what it does, so we can see how that actually has that bit of play. So we'll actually suck up into the chest. So rather than bunching up and actually pushing the body unit up itself, this will actually retreat into the inner portion of the chest, allowing you to get that more of a forward flex. It's like a turtle. Yes, like a turtle. Like a turtle shell. It just pokes his little head back up there. I like it. So, arms back out. Arm actual design itself hasn't actually changed too, too much from the Axis chest protector of original. However, what has changed is the way that the arm flexes in terms of its overall mobility now. So he gets that good flex right off the bat. As you can see, we're just going to remove that for a second. Opening it up, we still see CCM's adjustment. They've redesigned the buckle. One of the problems before was that that buckle used to turn and get stuck. Now it's actually stitched into the chest protector itself. That allows for easier arm adjustment and better holding on um, to the actual arm itself. Also, while we were in, we can call out another portion of D3O um, that has been added to the side portion of the chest. Also, a bit better fit in terms of where the arm actually integrates with the body itself. One of the other common feedbacks that we have had is that the arms will always tend to poke into the armpit and get a little bit uncomfortable. Kevin hasn't noticed that right off the bat, and that's has because they've redesigned the actual integration portion at the top of that arm. So a good call out, a good bit of a redesign from CCM as just paying attention to some of that feedback that we were giving them. Shoulder floaters, anything different here? I noticed there's a Velcro adjustment on the back of them in terms of is That's there correct. some adjustability here on the back as well. So we'll turn you all the way around. Spin around for me. So again, shoulder floaters, adjustable, easy to set up. So if you want them in a little bit tighter, if you want them out a little bit more, just create a little bit more head mobility. Overall body unit adjustment, similar to what we have seen in the past. Easy to pull that body up and get it set up the way we want. Easy adjustment in terms of for the overall body fit of the chest itself. Buckles, turn to the side. Your standard clip buckle is hidden behind a hard piece of plastic as well, designed to help protect that buckle from any of those shots that do happen to catch it. Kevin, access to chest. What's this for? Again, we were talking about that adjustment for the actual shoulder floater itself. You can see how we can again move it internally, bottom, up and down as well. So that will go hand in hand with that top adjustment for getting that set up to exactly where you want that to fit. Any other key points you want to talk about, Cam? Will you manhandle me and push me around? So, you can talk about it more here. My flaps and my adjustments and my turtle shell. Give me a call here at 604-589-8299 or 1-800-567-7790. We can talk about all the key features. We can leave Kevin's flaps alone for now. We can talk about it. Oh, I love the way Cam and Woody uh, beak at each other and go back and forth. But uh, there's nothing better than uh, the video, the YouTube part of it, uh, watching Woody just walk around with a chesty. Uh, and, and that's it. Uh, there's just something dorky about it that uh, that I enjoy. Uh, more gear segments uh, next uh, couple of weeks as uh, the new lines uh, become available. Uh, Hutch, uh, over to you, uh, because we're, we're getting a lot of interaction from uh, our friends uh, and followers of uh, the InGoal Radio podcast. Uh, YouTube interactions as well as questions uh, coming into you. We are. So on last week's gear segment, um, because the second half of it had to be filmed the next day because we realized there was something that Cam needed to add into it. Uh, Woody tried to fake it. He tried to come back. He rewashed his clothes. He wanted everybody to think that uh, it was the same day. And then he realized that he couldn't pull that off. So he decided to turn it into a little contest and ask people 
Can you spot the difference? Can you tell why, um, how you might know that this was filmed on a different day? What we expected was that people would notice that Woody had had a haircut, finally chopped the beautiful salad off his head. And in fact, I think only one or maybe two people in the comments actually noticed that Woody had cut his hair. But what people did notice and uh, Woody, I don't know if there's anything you want to tell us here, but uh, a lot of people picked up that his wedding ring was missing in one of the photos. Do we still have a CFO, Woody? I'm sure we do. I know Woody. it's just one of those things. She cuts all our checks, so we better still have her around. <laughs> Woody. <laughs> don't worry, guys. I'm still married. Just every once in a while, you know, I uh, maybe I don't know if it was exercise the morning or the night before, but the hands get a little puffy in allergy season and uh the rings don't quite slide on as easily some mornings as they do others. So that's all it it's was. It's happened I'm to me lots I take mine off to play goal because I actually had one break from a shot one time. Uh, really? Yeah. I, that's a good story. Uh, Not so probably much for, the, speaking, for, the, for, the, for the glove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably speaking more to the quality of the ring at the time, actually. But uh, that's quickly got me to not wearing a ring. Anyway, pretty cool that people did that. We had asked people to let us know and we'd send a couple stickers out or, or something cool from the in-goal swag locker. And uh, we decided to give an extra one to the person who first noticed the ring as well. Anyway, we got an entry in. In fact, one of the winning entries came all the way from Namibia of all places. It is so cool when we find out that people are reading and listening and watching all over the world. Definitely, we've had conversations with folks in New Zealand and Australia and all over Europe. But uh, Lucia Vandervault wrote in all the way from Namibia. And I just think that's incredibly cool. I'm sure we're in a completely, I know we're in a completely different time zone. So probably I sent my questions back in the middle of the night there. But I'm just dying to know more about being a goaltender in Namibia of all places. I did a little research. Uh, I think there's five hockey rinks in the uh, in the whole country. I think roller hockey is a, a much more popular version of our sport. But um, yeah, just love it. And uh, and then the other one, guys, I, I don't know how much time we want to take on this one because uh, the rambling man's been in fine form this morning. But uh, apologies. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's awesome. We absolutely love it. Uh, Richard Saint-Ange, who is from Hull, Quebec, he's a goalie coach there, wrote in the question and wondered if we wanted to knock it around. He, he basically was asking about the fact that NHL gear is spec to smaller sizes than the stuff that's available at retail for folks like us. And in fact, that pro level gear is only available to maybe major junior and some other goaltenders at the pro levels, possibly NCAA. And his question was, Shouldn't they make that pro size gear, that pro spec gear available at retail? And more importantly, if you are an up and coming elite goaltender, should you not want to wear the NHL spec gear because you're preparing to play at that level? Would it not be from a developmental perspective, somewhat of an advantage to be in the NHL size gear? He was specifically referring to the chest protector and pants, but we know that there's there's differences you know, in the other gear as well. So, Woody, what do you think, bud? Well, I mean, first of all, the differences in the other gear for the most part are limited to pad size being tied to the height and length of your legs. And so uh, there's a formula there. I guess in theory, you could sort of look up the formula and do your own calculation and try and figure out what length of pad you would be allowed to wear in the NHL, although it's not necessarily that simple. 
Um, they have a device that Kay Whitmore developed uh, using a bunch of PVC tube um, with an engineering friend of his that they use to measure the pads once you've sort of got your max height limit. Uh, outside of that, like most gloves and blockers are all sort of, you know, built out to the max NHL specs. And so that's all the same. So that'd be the biggest one. But you're right about chest and, and you're right point, about but pants. To be fair, in some of the reviews, you point, you've point you gleefully pointed out Kay Whitmore wouldn't approve of this feature of a set of pads. And you oh, yeah, could, the, the, yeah, for and, sure. The, and you um, could also just rise. argue maybe you should go on the small size when you're choosing your pads. Let's not max it out. Uh, of course, we can't all get the NHL measurement, but so to be yeah, fair, there's so other it, options. Yeah, two things. So one thing, yeah, you're right. Like especially we talked about that Bauer mock pad and the uh, thickness of the padding underneath the calf to support you in the butterfly and help you with the seal. I think you've seen that with um, others too. Yeah, you've seen other like that's a trend at retail that's not allowed uh, at the National Hockey League level. Um, so that that's one for sure that I almost forgot, and for sure like. You know, God, honestly, most guys in major junior are wearing pads that are an inch to two inches longer than what they're going to be allowed to wear in the National Hockey League. Like, that's just the reality. And that's an adjustment they have to make. But my answer on that would be the same as it's going to be for the chest and arm and the pants, which are significantly different. And that is, unless you try it, and like you said, Hutch, you can't even really get it necessarily. Even at major junior, I don't think you can get, for example, the most popular chest protector in the NHL right now is the CCM NHL version. And whether you can get that in major junior is a question mark. But even if you could, it's smaller. It's got a smaller profile. All of the sort of NHL spec does. And unless you think you're going to be better in smaller gear, Maybe it makes you more mobile. Maybe you feel more reactive in it. That's all that matters. You go out and you play in whatever gives you the chance to produce the best numbers. Because I guarantee you, guaranteed 100%, there is nobody watching you from a scouting perspective that's going, yeah, but is he going to be any good when he loses an inch off the shoulder or the pants fit an inch tighter? They're not looking at that. I've had this conversation with goalies that went to Europe when all these changes were going on, hoping to come back to the NHL. And they were thinking the same thing, man, I'm going to these leagues where these guys are huge. And should I stick with NHL spec stuff? Well, if it's going to be the difference, a couple points on your save percentage or goals again, like if that's going to be the difference between stopping and not stopping a few pucks, then you go with whatever's going to produce the numbers. Because nobody is looking at a goalie with worse numbers going, yeah, but he did it in NHL spec gear, so maybe that'll help him transition better. I guarantee you that is not a part of the conversation right now. You play in whatever you think is going to make you better at that level. Because if you don't produce the numbers, they ain't looking anyways. That's the reality. I think I largely agree with you, Woody. I, I, I do know from experience, um, my son in Vancouver was simply handed NHL spec pants. They had no choice. That's just what they get, and they have to wear those CCM pants uh, in the Western Hockey League. I largely agree with you. I just wonder, and, and this is not at all to suggest that we should be uh, choosing different gear, but just with respect to your comment about what scouts are thinking, with the bias against smaller goaltenders, I wonder if there are some scouts out there that penalize them even further by saying, he's small, and now he's going to be wearing smaller gear when he becomes a pro doesn't change the decision to wear larger gear by any stretch but i kind of wonder whether that might be happening 
Well, if 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 that's the case, then I the question would be how many of those scouts actually know whether he what what they're wearing right now and whether it's full size or not. Because I guarantee, like I, I can pretty much guarantee you, very few of them are even considering that mm. question. Um, and interesting, I didn't know that about the the WHL. I'd be I'd be interested to consider if that something that isn't a case necessarily in NCAA. Because again. If pucks are squeaking through those smaller, more rounded pants that wouldn't on squared off, you know, an inch wider on each leg pants that you can wear in other leagues, then the kids in the CHL are at a disadvantage in terms of the statistics they produce compared to other leagues where they're allowed to wear pants that aren't NHL conforming. Like that's just the reality. Pucks squeak through more on like there's a reason they made this redesign. It has an impact in terms of making goalies lives a little bit tougher. Is it huge? I'm not sure, but it's got an impact. And so uh, that's interesting to hear that because I would argue that that's a negative impact if you're being compared to goalies that don't have to make that adjustment in other leagues, whether it's the NCAA or even elsewhere around the CHL. There's an old phrase. Uh, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. Well, in this case, if you're not using whatever is allowed to be used, if, even if it's bigger, then you're not trying because uh, I just can't imagine uh, being uh, put in a situation where bigger gear is available to me and say, no, I'm, I'm going to go with the smaller gear because uh, that's what that's what I'm going to use at the next level. It just doesn't doesn't jive in that regard. And uh, I'm with Woody, too. Uh, the, like the coach isn't sitting up there going or the scout isn't sitting up there going. Yeah, but he's using legal gear, so uh, he'll be good at the next level because he, he's got that. They have they have no idea. They probably don't, but now that we have a few goalie departments and we've got some goalie-specific scouts yeah. out there, I kind of wonder whether it might happen one day. Not so much that they would ask it that question, but they might look at somebody who's playing in something slightly smaller and wonder if he'll have an easier time adapting. Mm-hmm. Not saying I that love, I would ever recommend smaller gear. but I love your optimism on the uh, the way goalie is trending and and departments and building it out, but I'm still too close to being told that an actual scout used Jacques Plant as a comparable for a goaltender within the last couple of years oh my during NH- NHL meetings leading into the draft to have any faith that they can actually spot whether a guy's in a CCM Pro or a CCM retail chest protector on the ice. Yeah, yeah I, I it think wasn't it, somebody in a goaltending department. I hope Woody. Yeah. No, no, it was not. But the, just an anecdote to the level it's, of it's sort amazing. of observations yeah. that uh, happen out there. Some of the stuff, guys, like, again, with all due respect to because some of them are asked to do things that they're they're just not experts on. Um, but some of the stories I hear from the goalie department about some of the inputs they get from the non goalie scouting staff. I mean, there's no other word for it. It's 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 laughable, frankly, that organizations are using that input for the decision making process. Um, when it comes to picking a goaltender in the NHL draft, like that's the only word I can come up with because literally I've been left in tears with some of the anecdotes that have been shared with me. Uh, let's get over to a guy who uh, loves talking about goaltending uh, equipment and uh, is uh, fascinating to talk to when it comes to this sort of stuff. Uh, not necessarily that we'll go down that path uh, with our feature interview brought to you by Sensorina VR. Uh, Corey Schneider is coming up and uh, that door works hand in hand with the Sensorina uh, progress that we're making. Sure does. I'm super excited for this one, Darren. Uh, Corey has always been one of my favorites and I know that Corey spends time at Stop It Goaltending um, in Boston uh, with Brian DeCord. And Brian DeCord, of course, is the Director of Goaltending Development for Sensorina. 
And uh, since Serena has been sponsoring our feature interviews for quite some time now, we're very thankful about that. And one of the things we love about Sense Arena is that they now have a new app so that all goaltenders, whether you're into Sense Arena or not, can go grab that app, download it, and get goaltending advice uh, every day. A lot of it from Brian DeCourt himself. So um, would encourage everybody out there, go download the app, give it a try, see what's on there. And then if you haven't yet, try Sense Arena. I'm sure the summer is going to be a great time to try it. Um, you know, I know we go by Eli Wilson's camps and he's got Sensorina up there for uh, his goaltenders to try during their dry land session. I know there's a lot of other coaches, including the guys that stop at goaltending that offer Sensorina in their summer camps and guys get out there, give it a try, see what you think. The realism is unbelievable at a time when it's tough to get some ice. Um, it get, gives you a chance to get out there and practice your skills, read shots, read plays, um, work on your hand-eye coordination, challenge yourself at a level above where you are now. It will make you a better goaltender this fall. Give it a go. Awesome stuff. Brian uh, DeCord over to Corey Schneider. Our feature interview brought to you by Sensorina VR. Here's Woody. Really excited to welcome back to the Ingo Radio Podcast. It's been a couple of years. Corey Schneider uh, coming off a season in the New York Islanders organization. I guess just first of all, Corey, thanks for taking the time uh, in the offseason, early in the offseason for you guys after a couple rounds of the playoffs. How are things? Kevin, uh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Like I said, it's no, you said it's been a little while. It's been a couple of years, but with how everything's gone the last year, the doesn't seem that long ago, but um, I'm doing well. I'm uh, I'm out east in uh, Connecticut where uh, I played this year for the most part and just uh, taking some time after the season to just, you know, rest, relax, be with the family and just kind of reassess and take stock of uh, of what's next. So, um, like I said, just trying to just take some time and, and uh, decompress here a bit. Well, before we push you too much on what's next, catch me up on how this season went, on how the past couple of seasons have gone. I mean, when we talked to you in 2019, you were headed to the World Championships, coming off a season that was a lot about recovery from hip surgery and sort of rediscovering your health and your game, but feeling pretty good about things. And there's been, you know, been some ups, some highs, and some lows since then. Where's the body at? How's the health at? You had a hell of a season this year. Um, how's it all kind of come together over the past couple of years? Uh, yeah, like you said, it's, it's been um, an interesting few years, again, just for the world at large and myself. But, um, yeah, coming into that season after we spoke, you know, I felt pretty good after the hip surgery and, and um, world championships. And, like I said, I was just trying to just to play more and, and get get my body moving again and get uh, my hip back where it needs to be, all that stuff. And I felt really confident coming into that 2019 season. And um, just it just didn't happen the way... I wanted it to, or the team, or anything. We had a lot of expectations and hype after getting, you know, Jack and and you know PK and all that stuff, and coming off, you know, a, a pretty good year the year before. So, um, yeah, we just we just got into a hole, myself included, early, and just never recovered. And it's you know been pretty well documented. He got sent down, and you know by the end there, I was feeling really good again, and and came back up and had some really good games right before the shutdown. So it's sort of disappointing that I wasn't able to. Um, continue that and build off of that and um you know obviously we went to that off season of uncertainty or, or when when the world sort of shut down and we weren't going to the bubble and um you know i had i had an idea so you know when it happened it was it was tough but it's just it's as you know it's part of the game it's part of where if you're not 
you know, um, if the, you know, if the team isn't certain that you can stay healthy or be the guy or carry the mail, it's a hard position to hide. It's not maybe like a forward defenseman where you can limit their ice time or shelter them a bit and, and sort of live with the cap. It's, it's you got to be able to perform and play if you're a goalie. And, um, you know, they felt at that time, you know, for what I was earning, it, it wasn't a match. And, and, you know, it's disappointing, but that's just the reality of this, this world, the game we play. So, you know, coming off that, I was just looking for a place to, you know, uh, maybe rebuild my game, gain my confidence back, find a place to play. And when Lou called and the Islanders, uh, obviously there's a lot of familiarity there just from a personnel standpoint, the way they play, the structure, the, the you know, the goaltending with Piero Greco and, and Mitchie Korn, the goaltending coaches, it just seemed like an ideal spot to uh, come in and, and rehab my game and just, you know, have a chance to play for a really good, you know, team, a defensive team. And, you know, so I was the taxi squad guy, the number three, and, um, you know, Ilya, obviously Sorokin, they, they weren't sure what they had with him because he never really played over there. So it was also maybe different policy for him, but he he was unbelievable from, from day one and he has been ever since. So that that wasn't an issue. And just with COVID and everything going on that year, you know, nobody got sick, nobody got hurt, which is great because, you know, Billy and, and Farley were, were fantastic and a huge part of our team. So, you know, I would never wish that upon anybody. But, you know, I think we were one of maybe two teams in the league who didn't end up using three goalies. So it was a bit of a, a year where I just, you know, it, it, I was joking that I was 33 right before the, the COVID shutdown and turned 34 like a week later. And I wasn't going to play my next game potentially until I was 35 um, or in this instance, 36. So. You know, it was a bit of a lost year in that sense in terms of game action and, and trying to stay with the pace and with the game. And so, you know, I, I was a lot of uncertainty after that year. I hadn't played in, in over a year, really. I practiced a lot, but, you know, as you know, or as any goalie knows, you know, practice is, is so different than the game. It's, it's hard to get a feel for where you're at. So I was at a bit of a crossroad, you know. And, you know, it's tough to drum up interest in a goalie who's 34 and hasn't played in a year. So, you know, I decide, is this, is this it? Is this how, I'm, you know, it's going to end? And, and that's okay if it is, you know, it's, it's because it's part of life and part of the game. But, you know, I, I more or less just wanted to know one way or the other, hey, can I, can I play at all? Can I, can I sort of get back to what I was? Like, I felt pretty good, but I just didn't know. So I think the not knowing would have really uh, eaten me up if I if I'd stepped away and not played and just said, well, maybe I could have. And I just didn't want to have that feeling. So um, when I had an offer to come back in the same role, but just start in Bridgeport, uh, I, I took it because I, you know, even though it's the American League, you're an injury away from being called up or, or being pressed into action. And, and there were a few call ups in there. I started the season up while Farley came back from knee. You know, but you could tell maybe the coaching staff or, you know, I, I'm not sure how much they trusted me or, or believed in me just because they'd never seen me play. And again, that's, that's understandable. I mean, you know, they want to have faith in you and, and know you can do it. And, you know, beginning of the year, I wasn't sure. And, and uh, I just tried to do everything I could to, to show them that I was ready. And, you know, I got called up again a few other times and finally got that opportunity in, in April to play against New Jersey. And it was exciting. It was a lot of fun. It was great to, to get that chance. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, I, I even though, like I said, it was the American League, um, I was able to show that I, I could play, you know, maybe not at the highest level in the NHL, but at a high level in the American League. And, and you know, I felt pretty good and felt I showed out pretty well in the one game I did play in the NHL. So it's encouraging and it gives you hope and optimism. But again, it's, you know, similar set of circumstances coming into this offseason you know can I still do it at that highest level that I want to because if you're going to play and you're going to be in the American League you have to be prepared to play in the NHL and show that you can because as we've seen teams go through three four five six goalies in a season or in the playoffs so you know you can't come back and, and not be prepared to play at that level because you know it seems like everyone gets pressed into action at some point so sort of where we are the body feels pretty good just some old man aches and pains throughout the year but no nothing structural nothing that 
kept me out for an extended period of time or was chronic or needed preparing after the season. So, yeah, I'm kind of waiting and seeing it, you know, see how I feel, how my body feels starting to work out again and maybe wait to see if there's any interest again, either from the Islanders or somebody else. And um, it's all going to factor in my family, kids, uh, my wife, everything that's going on right now, just making sure that, you know, because they're, they're a big part of it. So they have to be up for it and be able to, to get through another season with that, you know, being gone or missing school events or games, as you know, as they get older, that kind of stuff starts happening. And so it's a lot of stuff, again, that I have to think about for this offseason. So the right opportunity, but also I, I would imagine geography plays into it too, like um, especially the ups and downs. Like if you sign a deal where you know there might be time in both leagues, needs to be a place where those are in somewhat proximity so that, so that you, can sort of, you can sort of do both. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's a good point. You know, we, uh, we rented closer to Bridgeport this season because I knew I was going to be there most of the year in a place called Fairfield, Connecticut. And, um, we ended up loving it. It was great for the kids. It was great for us. We had no real home base, you know, because we're, we've moved on from our home in Jersey and we've sold our place in Boston that we had in the off season. So we were sort of trying to look for the next place and we just, we enjoyed it here so much that we ended up buying a house in Fairfield. So you know, this is going to be our home base for the next little while. So you're right, you know, geography matters and not having to uproot the family and move again and do all that is also important. And that's, you know, a factor in whether you play or don't play or, you know, where you do play if you do choose to. So, you know, that's something I'll have to weigh, again, depending on interest and offers or lack of interest or offers and um, decide if it makes sense for me and my family. Like you said, it's been it's been a couple of years, right? Really tough to uh, find landing spots, find opportunities as much as we've seen you know, more goalies than ever end up playing at least a game in the NHL because of all the injuries. It's also competition for jobs has never been fiercer, especially with what's going on overseas. There'll be more guys coming back. Uh, it hasn't been an easy couple of years on anyone, especially goaltenders. So I got to ask, with all that going on and with the career you've already had at the National Hockey League level, like you already said, you know, you, you just wanted to know, but I'm guessing there still has to be a passion for it too, to keep playing. Like, why do you still love you still love it? You st- are you still enjoy the grind? Uh, maybe a little less so when it was all practices during that sort of one bubble year, but you just still love playing the position enough to keep going. Yeah, and that's that's the key, right? It's it's especially as you get older. Um, you know, everyone talks about it. You, you gain perspective, you gain experience. You're able to look at the game a little bit differently than you did when you were 25, 26, just trying to survive and make it and establish yourself. And yeah, there was a stretch there where the game was was really difficult for me and, and not as fun as it used to be. I think anytime you struggle or you expect to play at a certain level and you can't or you don't, I think any athlete faces that as you sort of wind down your career, you get towards the latter half, things just are harder than they used to be. The game to me always made sense. It always, I was always able to know where the puck was going to be and knew what to do. And then there was a stretch there where it just, it stopped making sense. It just, it was hard. And I think that's very normal feeling for somebody at the NHL level, but when you haven't really experienced a whole lot of it, it's, it, it can be difficult to, to deal with and um, it can get you down. It can rattle your confidence. It can sort of change your belief in, in everything you've known and that has come easily to you over your life and your career. So yeah, there was a stretch there where it was, it was hard. It was difficult sometimes to come to the rink or to, to get yourself out of it or to find a way to, to play at the level you knew you can and injuries are part of it and wear and tear and all that. But um, you know, I think coming to the Island, even though it was, it was a practice, you know, taxi squad situation last year, I think, you know, going to the conference finals and, you know, even though I didn't play any games, just being a part of that was, was fun. It was exhilarating. It was exciting. You know, I've been a while since um, I've been a part of a playoff run like that. And I think it, it kind of reinvigorated me a little bit to say like, hey, this this game is fun, you know, when it comes down to it. And 
And I think just as a competitor too, you, you know, I, I'd rather know than not know. And even if, even if the answer was, Hey, you, you can't play anymore. That's fine. You know, that's okay. That's an acceptable answer. It happens to every athlete at some point. So I think I was ready for that answer, but I also, you know, clearly had enough passion and interest and desire to put the work in to, to find out. So yeah, I think, you know, I've always loved hockey and I've always enjoyed it. And I try not to let it define me or, or sort of establish like who or what I am, but uh, you know, it's been the biggest, one of the biggest parts of my life for 30 years, ever since I started playing and my life has revolved around it in some way, shape or form. So, you know, that's a, that's not a normal thing for most people, but it's, uh, it's, you know, you said it, 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 it has to be there though, if you're going to continue playing, otherwise, you know, there's no point in doing it because you're just, you're shortchanging yourself and your family and your teammates and all that. So. Um, clearly that's part of the process now is to just make sure that if I do play that it's, it's a full in, full commit, full send and um, make sure that I, I give it everything I have. Otherwise, there's no point in doing it. Well, you obviously showed you can still play last year. Like I said, a 921 in Bridgeport for the season, 927, a nice little playoff run. Where did the answers come from? You said there were, you know, it sounded like even reads, Corey, like, you know, like you always knew where the puck was going to go. And it, it sounds like you were questioning that or doubting that or you'd, you'd there were times there where that didn't make sense to you, which surprised me. But the game's changing so darn fast in front of us in terms of what those reads are and what guys are doing and the the dynamic type of offense we're seeing created. You know, how much of sort of rediscovering your game was technical, physical, feeling good? How much of it was just trusting those reads, learning them again almost after a couple of years without playing? Uh, what was the biggest challenge and how'd you get it back? Like, how'd you get back to being the Corey Schneider we know? I think it was a couple of things. I think, um, you know, I think that year of practice, even just working with Mitchie and Piero on an almost daily basis was important. Um, they pointed out some things that they saw in my game over the last years that they felt they could change or, or improve upon, which again, as you, when you've been doing it a long time, it's, it's hard to make big changes. And right. sometimes when you're in the same place, the same organization, you don't have fresh eyes and, you know, maybe you're, you know, not, and this is not a knock at all on the people I worked with in New Jersey. You know, it, it was, there's a lot going on there and I think they had my best interest at heart, obviously, but sometimes if you get a fresh set of eyes, it can point out some things that you hadn't noticed or that maybe you hadn't been noticed before. So I think that was good for me too, just to, just to see those things and say, Oh man, you're right. Like that's why I keep getting scored on there. I couldn't figure it out, but that's why that shot keeps going in and that makes sense. And now I can work to adjust that. So I think that was a good part of it. And I think just getting in game situations when my body was breaking down a little bit, it, uh, it changes the way you play a little bit. You know, I, I wasn't able to sit into it a little bit as much as I used to with my hips. I was bending a lot at the waist and putting a lot of stress on my back and my stance and bending at the knees and the hips and that kind of thing. And, you know, that starts some bad habits where all of a sudden your, you know, your head level's changing more than you're used to instead of keeping it at a constant, you know, you're able to really get low and push across and keep your eyes and head, you know, coming up a lot and sort of standing up because that's what my hip and my back wanted me to do because I sort of, gotten to a bad habit of, of not getting you know deep enough when I needed to so little things like that that you kind of recognize and you can address and then you just, you're able to put them into game action and you say oh that worked and now you can get some confidence back and now you trust yourself and your reads and your puck tracking and all those things and um you get you get a little bit of that swagger back where you're not thinking as much uh, you know I, I got to a point where I was thinking my way through a lot of games um and I think as a goalie that's that's the death sentence um because then you're you're not playing, you're thinking. And that's, I think, when you get in trouble. So I think for the first time in a while, I was able to just get into a rhythm and feel good about it and, and build on that. And, it, you know, maybe an overly simplistic or, you know, non-specific answer, but I think that's just such a big part of goaltending is 
you know, you do the technical work and you know you can do that, but applying it in the games and being confident in applying it, it, it can mean the difference between goals trickling through you or just beating you and being in the right spot and seeing it and, and going and getting and stopping it and not letting those ones sneak through. So, um, you know, again, I think it was sort of a combination of all those things. To quote Top Gun, and now I guess Top Gun Maverick because they repeated the line in it, if you think out there, you're dead. <laughs> exactly. That's right. I got to see the new one too, by the way. I've heard good things. Yeah, you do have to see the new one. This I was actually quite hopeful because that was my favorite line from the original that drew, that the sort of tied into goaltending, right? And, and you're right, because we go through all these technical changes, but until they become instinctual and something you don't think about, um, it's, it, you know, it's problematic. You don't have time out there to sort of think through everything you're doing. It has to become sort of innate and reactive. And so I always loved that line from the original. The problem was, as I got older and you guys got younger, nobody actually knew the line. So I'm hoping more guys now watch the new one and know what, know what the hell I'm talking about and don't give me that third eye look. I just found out his name is Pete Mitchell, Maverick. I didn't know that. I watched that movie a million times and I did not know his name was Pete Mitchell. So I learned something new every day. At least you'd seen the movie, so you know the line. How That's do you, right. uh, you... You need to play to sort of find that. And, and I, it's, it's amazing to me. Like, there's so many little threads there I wanted to pick on. Stance is one of them, Corey. Like... Um, as much as I don't think a lot of young goalies think about it, but obviously you went through this and for you, it was physical and, and the body sort of breaking down and then having to rebuild it up and that affecting your stance, but how we set up on pucks, how we set up in movement, like that matters. The sort of mechanics, the physiology of how you do that is such a foundational part of a goaltender's game. It sounds like you had to sort of rediscover some elements that had slipped through the injury. I think when you're, as I said, you're not moving as well, you're not reading as well, you get, you get complacent and you, you, uh, you don't do the extra work, like you said, before the shot. Like you're afraid you're going to be late, so you maybe cheat or you try to push and you get there and you stop as opposed to giving that extra little adjustment at the end to make sure that, you know, if the puck moves laterally, you're, you're square. So I felt, you know, there were times I was coming up short or I was getting to a spot and then not moving the extra six inches to a foot when the guy drifted a bit and, you know, getting beat to that side. And I think sometimes, like you said, when your your body isn't doing what you're used to it doing or you're mentally, you're more worried about just getting there and then not, you know, finishing the play, you come up short a little bit. And again, like you said, if you're not doing the work before the play, when you're not reading the, the rush correctly or you're too far out because you're afraid of getting beat by the original shot, it sets you up to be late on the next one or to overcommit to that one and not, you know, like I said, stay loose on your skates. You get a little tense, you get a little rigid is what is what I felt happened to me. I felt, and then, you know, Mitch and Pierre pointed it out is that, you know, my arms were, were pinned in and my hands were really narrow and my stance was narrow and they just thought I was playing really tight. And, you know, you need to, you need to have that, you have to have, to have a little tenseness in your game. You can't just be, you know, a wet noodle, but, you know, you also have to, have that fluidity and that airiness about your game where you can get up and move, you know, easily and not, like you said, just, just get to your spot and drop or, you know, get to your spot and give up on the play. So for me, it was just kind of like having that looseness to my game that I didn't have before and going and getting pots and not just trying to block everything or have everything meet you at your body, but just being a little more aggressive and meeting the puck ahead of it or, um, you know, like you said, just making those small adjustments before the shot comes. So that way it's an easier shot. You're not reaching or extending on everything and then getting beat to those sides. To dig back into one of your very early goalie coaches when you first started with the Vancouver Canucks and he's now back here with Vancouver. 
as Ian Clark always says, tension is the enemy of goaltending. Yeah, and you know, I always like to tell myself before games, like you know, tight mentally but loose physically. Like you want to be tight mentally, where you're you're aware and you're paying attention, you're aware of all these things, but you want to try to keep your body loose so that way you can execute what your brain is telling you to do. And you know, I found sometimes I was getting tight physically as well, or maybe loose mentally because you know you're not seeing things the right way or you're not making the right reads. So as you said, you know, tension it's 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 it kills you because then all of a sudden you're playing the game tense and like I said, pucks are bouncing off of you or you're just not very smooth or, or fluid with it. And, and that's when you get a lot of trouble. Any other uh, tips or tricks that you learn from? And, and it's funny because we do, we, we talk a lot about Mitch Korn with the New York Islanders. And I think sometimes overlook Piero and just how good a goaltending coach he is as well. Um, just because of the, the shadow that Mitch casts on the goaltending world. But any, I mean, I, I know there's some, you know, there's some tools that might be unique. I'm not sure if you got the dog leash treatment or white pucks <laughs> or screen boards, but there's a lot of different things that go into working with Mitch. And I'm not sure how much Piero uses as well, but um, what was that experience like? I mean, there's a guy that, you know, I'm going to argue this uh, till I'm out of this industry. Um, we need to have goalie coaches in the Hall of Fame and and right alongside Francois Lair would be Mitch Korn. What's it like to work with with a guy like that? Yeah, it was awesome. I think, you know, unfortunately, due to the circumstances, they were both, you know, just, you never want those circumstances of COVID, but because of it, they were both there pretty much every day throughout the season. And I know Mitchie's role now more so as a kind of a goalie consultant or, you know, head of goaltending, and he would come out, you know, for a week and go back and forth and do his thing. But I think with that year, he was there every day, and so was Piero. So even though there were three goalies or, you know, I was only practicing, I always had at least one of them, if not both, uh, with me doing pre-ice or doing post-ice or doing whatever and you know Mitch you didn't get too crazy I think you know with me and Barley he knows we're older guys more veteran and I think I from what I'd heard in the bubble he and Ilya got after pretty good so I think he, he, they had a good rapport and a good understanding so he wasn't you know he wasn't pulling out all those tricks that I you know you've heard about the med balls and like you said the leashes and the whiteboards um, but it was more I think just I, I don't want to say fundamental but you know, philosophical, like, Hey, you see what's happening here, right? Like you're giving up this part of the net. You need to shift over more. Like you need to stay down on it more or just make sure your head track, you know? So it's stuff that I understood and knew. So it wasn't like he had to get too, too intense with it, but you know, that was good because we did it every day, repetitive, Piero, same thing. Piero, as you mentioned, I think does fly under the radar because he, he's worked every day with, with Ilya and Barley. And before that, uh, you know, Bryce and, and Leonard, and, uh, you see what the results have been. So, for working with Piero, he's so positive. You know, it's always, hey, like, you know, here's what we're going to do. And, like, he'll, he'll train you and teach you without without beating you over the head with it. So it's easy to work with him. It's easy to go in every day and sort of say, all right, like, here's what we're going to work on. And, and for me, I think the biggest thing, and, and, you know, you see in the game today, is just turning as you're moving laterally, making sure that you're adjusting your angle as you're moving laterally. And I think, for me, one of the hardest things, adjustments I've had to make, and the biggest adjustments in the league, is that guys are better than ever about, changing the angle of their shot as they're shooting it. You know, they'll keep it in tight, push it, shoot it, or they'll pull, you know, have it out far, pull it, shoot it. And then once they're shooting it, they'll show one side, but they're able to, you know, go back the other way. Or, you know, they turn the blade over the last second when you think glove and go blocker. So I think for me, just keeping up with those stick changes, I'd be, I'd be squared up with the guy. So you're aligned with his body and you think you're on your angle, but then he pushes the puck out, you know, five feet and all of a sudden it completely changes the angle. And you only have a half second to, to, change but you have to make that adjustment where you shift into it or you make a small shuffle step to move with the puck and i think because of where i was at i was so focused on like stopping that first shot or being aligned with him that i 
wasn't making those small adjustments side to side as they manipulated the angle of the puck and where they held it in their stance. And I think Tierra and Mitch, you know, really helped me just realize that and understand it and do those small little, because I'm such a key pusher. I always key push, you know, like with Broly and Clarky, it was all about key pushes. I just, I wasn't a big shuffler because I liked to play deep. I didn't like to get too far out. I, I didn't like shuffling. I just, I always felt I had a hard time keeping my angle. I felt the key push just allowed me to keep my angle and then get my depth. Um, but with the way the game's trended, you have to have those little small shuffle correction steps. I think in your game, as guys come down you faster and shooting it better than ever. So I think that was the big adjustment for me that they helped me realize and understand. So, um, you know, they're, they're very personable and communicative and they stay in touch even when I was in Bridgeport and came to watch. And, um, and at the end of the day, they were rooting for me. I think they felt that with some help, I could, I could be a good goalie and the guy close to the guy I was before. And um, having that belief and faith in you is, goes a long way as well as a goalie to think like, oh, these guys actually trust me and think I can do it and want to work with me, which is always encouraging. I was going to say, I guess your reads in some ways, like especially because you didn't play much at all for a couple of years, like your reads would have changed. Like deception... I don't think there's ever been more deception in the National Hockey League, like you said, in terms of the way guys are getting rid of shots, hiding releases, changing releases mid-snap. You know, some of the techniques that are being taught, it's like the players have finally cut up to goaltending in the offseason. They're actually working on their skills and not just getting bigger, faster, stronger. But for you reading those plays, you wouldn't be able to go on your first instinct of what they show because they're delivering something different by the time it leaves their blade. What was that adjustment besides like sort of being able to still make those adjustments and not locking in on the initial read, the initial shot. Like how, how do you make that adjustment? How do you, how do you stay on the puck longer to make sure you pick up all the information rather than going early based on something that you've seen so many times before? This always leads to that. Well, now it doesn't necessarily. How do you make that adjustment? Cause it sounds like it sounds somewhat simple when you talk about it, but man, like that's a big one. It is, and it was, and I, and I think too, just you know, to not to divert from your question, but just the overall state of like the game and goaltending. Right. Um, you know, when I came in the league ten, thirteen years ago, when you know we met in Vancouver and that that era of hockey wasn't that long ago, but you know, you had you had a fourth line that didn't really play and couldn't score. You had a checking line. You had maybe two or three defensemen that were more offensive minded. Um, so there were a there were just less threats all over the ice. Um, the game was just played a different way, especially in the West. There was bigger, heavier cycling, throw pucks to the net, get bodies in traffic, and you know it seemed like as long as you were in good position and square, you you gave yourself a chance to make a lot of saves. And obviously, you had to pull out the you know the the great A's when there was rush opportunities or open looks. Um, but today, you know, all four lines can skate and score. You know, all six defensemen are expected to join the offense and, and play up in the rush. Um, I find guys are more willing to turn down open grade A looks than ever to, to find a better look. You know, you'll have a guy coming down the wing and he's got a wide open shot and he'll stare at you and look at you and then, you know, maybe button hook back and try to find a trailer and move you laterally or fling a pass across, you know, the Royal Road to just to see if they can make the play. Whereas before, if you made that play and turned it over, you got benched. So I think guys are more willing now than ever to turn, to turn down good looks to look for a better look. And as a goalie, for me, like you said, the adjustment is you, you can't get completely locked in on that first chance because he may not take that shot and you can't get too aggressive on him because if you do and he goes around here and moves it laterally, you're in a lot of trouble. So um, I think that was part of it, just seeing it. Again, just playing and seeing it and, and having it register. You know, my first three or four games in the American League uh, weren't great because there were turnovers and there were open looks that I wasn't expecting this to happen. And 
guys made plays that I was like, why didn't he shoot that? And, you know, I, I think my first three or four, like, weren't ideal statistically, but it gave me a snapshot to, to process and figure out, okay, here's how I, the adjustments I need to make. Like you said, just being more patient, holding my edges longer, um, not committing to that first shot, even though he's got a good look. Um, knowing who else is coming because you don't, you don't have to see the first two or three guys. You need to know where like the fourth and fifth trailers are coming from because you know they're they're a threat. They're in the play. So and you said as you, as you said as well, like getting used to the way guys are shooting with angles and deception and releases. And, and if you haven't seen that for a year or two, like it, it, it takes time. So I think that was like I said, my goal was to just play and get it because I, I wasn't playing consistently enough. And if you're not playing well, it's hard to get that ice time too. I think that was part of the issue in Jersey or wherever. Is you know, when you're not performing, you're not going to play. So they sort of went hand in hand. But once I was able to come to Bridgeport and just just play, um, you know, and it wasn't indiscriminate. I think I had to play well, and I started to eventually, and then I got more and more ice time, and then it builds and builds, and you're able to execute those adjustments um, better. Uh, it makes all the difference. A lot of that, what you talked about, like like patience, has become increasingly important. Obviously, holding edges as the game has gotten so much more dynamic offensively for you making that adjustment was does that tie into stance as well and sort of not getting locked in because I guess that's the one thing is if we start getting low and wide and locked in as goaltenders that's when we lose that mobility so did you have find yourself having to stay taller and narrower on some of those chances to maintain that mobility or was it just more the read aspect of patience that way like how do you how did you get more patience in a game that has become so dynamic now yeah, again, I think it's, it is, uh, you know, like you said, it's, it's knowing when to challenge and be aggressive and knowing when you need to sit back and, and maybe save some ice to make a lateral play or push or things like that. Um, so, so more about reads then? More about reads for me, I think, um, you know, because if you do get locked into your stance and get stuck, it, it's your toast, you know, but you also can't be too narrow where, um, you know, you're giving them a lot of net to shoot at because, again, these guys can, can shoot it by you at any given moment now, which is, you know, maybe they couldn't before. Um, right. You said some was physical, some was like being more comfortable in my stance and, and, and not bending at the waist and getting stuck hunched over, or like you said, keep my eye level at the same level and not bobbing up and down or, you know, coming out of my stance when I didn't need to. And some of it too is, you know, it sounds silly, but like I, I felt like I just had to rework my skating a bit. You know, I, I did so much skating with Ian and, and Rolly in terms of like T pushes and crease movements. And all of a sudden, when you're not playing as much or you're not practicing as regularly, even, even with COVID, there were a lot of times where, like we didn't practice a whole lot. And as you get older and you've had injuries, you may not be as fluid in your hips. Like I just felt like I had to get better at skating. I had to improve my skating a bit, just my edge control, like opening up, getting deep into my pushes, you know not not cutting my T-pushes short because when you cut them short, you're flat across and you think you're there, but you're actually short or you're actually not square because you sort of, you didn't quite get your angle. You sort of like, as if you can picture like a shallow semicircle versus like a deep semicircle, um, you know, you're, you didn't quite get to your angle, but now you're getting your depth, but you're off because you didn't get to your angle originally. So for me, I think part of it too is just reworking my edge control, like, you know, maybe my skates. I, I've been using the old school skates for the longest time, whereas they're adjusting <laughs> to the truth and the, you know, player type skates. And so it's, it's sort of that too. It's like, okay, like, can I get an advantage by, by changing my equipment to be lighter, get more edge or not, you know, blow a tire if I am pushing and sliding. And um, so I just felt, like I said, I, I had to get better at skating again, which is something you forget about as a goalie. Like you just sort of take it for granted or like, all right, I have my base. I, I know how to, I know how to keep push. I know how to shuffle. I know how to get around the grease. Um, but then at times it feels awkward or like you find yourself off balance more than you ever did because you're not, you're, 
maybe on your heels or like you're expecting the shot. And like you said, you're, you're, you're caught flat footed because you're too wide and you've already committed. So again, part of it for me was just taking the time to work on that stuff, just be more diligent about it to, to make sure that you said my edges were in the right places and that my weight was in the right place. And that and sometimes, as, you know, as you know, or as goalies know, like you don't feel comfortable in your stance sometimes, like it just feels off and then play more, yeah. you make some saves or you have a good game or two. And all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I, I don't need to look for my, my arm slot or my stick because it's there. Just, I just lean over and there it is. This is where I feel solid and in balance and under control while also still being athletic and, um, you know, being able to move quickly if I need to. What do you see? What have you seen? Like we talked about the East West and the patience on the plays and what's changed in terms of the dynamic nature of the offense. Um, put you on the spot as more of an outside, like, like 30,000 foot view analyst. The injuries this year. Do you, do you think that's yeah. just because we're trying to catch up to all of that? Do you think it's because guys, like you said, some guys like yourself who didn't play for a year and now all of a sudden they're thrown in? Like, is this just a blip or has the game become so challenging that we need to rethink how we're managing, whether it starts or our bodies or because this it was it was crazy this year, like 119 guys. That's we've never seen anything like it. Yeah, well, I think it's a. It's just my on-the-spot answer. I think there's two parts to that equation. I think the one we've talked about is that the skill level and the pace and the way the game's played is just taken off. It's in a different stratosphere. You know, Dale McCars and Nathan McKinnons and, you know, these kind of guys didn't exist 10 years ago. Right. And right. They, they're, I, I personally think they're in the process of a, almost like a re-revolution, excuse me, I can't say that word, um, re- revolutionizing the game, similar to the way Bobby Orr or Wayne Gretzky did. And that may be a crazy take, but, you know, I find it hard to compare players from today to players in the past. Like, I don't think you can compare Bobby Orr to Kiel McCarr or Wayne Gretzky. To, it's just too different. The game's right. too different. The equipment, it's all too different. You can compare eras. You know, like, Gretzky was that much better than everybody else in his era, which I think tells you Bobby Orr was that much better than everyone in his era. And you look at these guys now, like, they are that much better than, and then not just those two, but, you know, a group of guys, like, they're that much better than everybody else in this era, which I think puts them in that that class so i think you're seeing a, a reinvention of the game in a sense which is making it really hard on goalies because the skill level the speed is higher than it's ever been the other thing i think that i don't know if it gets talked about a lot is i think you're seeing a huge turnover in the goalie group of the nhl i mean just thinking of my era if you want to go from like the 83 four birth years to the 88 there was two-thirds of the league that had goalies locked up to long-term contracts that played for 10 or 15 years. You know, we go down the list like Crawford, Rask, Bishop, Price, myself, Luongo, uh, Rene, Holtby, Flurry, uh, Howard, you know, Quickie, um, you know, I don't know how many I named right there, but like, that's a, that's a huge group of guys that played for the better part of a decade and played a lot. So I think yeah. what you saw is you had a lack of guys developing and breaking in. You had the elite ones like the Vasilevskis and the Hellebucks and the Gibbs. Like those guys were able to break through because they were that good and they should have. But I think what it did is it might have stunted or denied opportunities for a lot of the young goalies in the next generation to come in and, and get that experience and become guys. Because you, you know teams are always seem more comfortable with like the established veteran or the guys they know can do it. Always lean that way. And, and I think what you're seeing now is we've expanded by two teams. So you know, you need 64 NHL caliber goalies. And realistically, as you said, 96, you know, NHL capable goalies. Right. And when you lose, you know, 10 to 15 to 20 guys who've been playing for the last decade, that's a big void to fill. And it's not a knock on the kids coming up. I think they're, you know, 
they're being pressed into action far sooner than, you know, maybe I was or other guys were who were allowed to develop and work in behind guys like Louie and Kippersoff and Broder and guys who just played all the time and you were able to build your game and work and take your time. And now guys like, Hey, we need, we need a warm body. Like, let's go. Like you're playing. And some guys thrive and take off with it. Some guys get shell shock and struggle, you know, expectedly so, because again, the game's only gotten harder. So I think you have a combination of maybe a, an evolution of the way the game's played and a lack of ready made NHL goaltending skill, um, which I think will come. You'll see seeing guys sort of break through and show and, shine and say oh this maybe got something here that in the past this guy never would have gotten a chance he never would have seen him play but now it's like hey maybe this kid can play um but i think the fact you still see guys like and god bless him like mike smith playing unbelievable right now and craig anderson at 40 like there's a reason teams keep bullies until they're 40 is because they they have the experience and they trust them and, and they know that they know what they're doing and they trust them more than a young guy um but i think you're losing a lot of those guys now because retirement and injuries or whatever and you're having to fill that void on the fly and maybe you haven't developed a kid the way you wanted to or you can't be patient with him or you have to make him learn on the fly and kind of get thrown in the fire. So, and again, I don't think it's the goalie's fault, but I, I think you're, to your point, I think the goalies are now catching up to the shooters in a sense where the shooters were forced to catch up to the goalies because they're so advanced and so proficient. Um, a lot of that has been negated by the, the pace and the style and the east-west nature of the game that, I don't care how good you are. It's like you can look terrible on any given night these days. It's A, your team in front of you doesn't play well, and B, the other team is making plays that they have no business making. Yeah, the level of skill is just off the charts. Do, do you have do you have have you looked ahead and thought how do we like how do we get ahead again? Like is there a next step for the goalies to catch <laughs> back up or get ahead of these guys? Or is that that's gotta be even if you have, you should I probably mean, keep that to yourself. That's just that that's the advantage <laughs> now. Well, yeah, it's, it's that's the whole that's the fun of it, right? The cat and mouse. I mean, goalies turned to the RVH, and, and that was a huge uh, moment for goaltending because I think it, it it made the game easier for us and, and challenged the shooters. Now shooters are picking corners by their heads and doing the Michigan lacrosse move goal to counter that. You know, like they gave them a chance to figure out how to defeat that or maybe pick that apart. And now maybe the goalies have to go back to a VH style or more holding their feet in certain instances and not rely on the RVH so much. You know, like that's not a I don't think necessarily that should happen. I'm just sort of speculating as to the cat and mouse nature of, of goaltending and shooting. And um, and just from what I see, you know, like it starts too with the kind of athletes that we're putting in net. You know, Vasilevsky right. and myself having played with um, Mackenzie Blackwood, like this kid is, this kid should be an NFL tight end, you know, like how athletic he is. Um, yeah. You know, Spencer Knight is off the charts athletic. So I, I think you're seeing not, you know, and I was always a good athlete, but I've never been like a specimen. You know, I've never been like, this elite athlete who can jump out of the gym and has all these incredible measurables. Like I've kind of used my mind more with, with the athleticism I have to be successful. But I think now you're going to have to start pumping out these guys like we are, who are, you know, six, three, six, four, but can move like UC Saros, who's five eleven, and, and all the credit of the world to him for being his size and being as good as he is. Cause I think he's, he is the exception. Obviously he's been outstanding. So I just think the athleticism is going to continue to, to be a factor for goalies and then you're going to weed it down to the guys who have the technique have the mind and have the athleticism and those are the guys who are going to be able to i think counter um some of this offense that we're seeing uh, but you know for me right now i don't have a ready-made response on how to do it like it's it's just really challenging and again i think as a goalie as we know you're so dependent on the team in front of you and how you play and if right. your team is giving up breakaways and two on ones and three on o's like i don't care how good you are like you're going to get scored on eventually so some of it too is going to be stylistically how do teams as a whole counteract 
you know, these, the speed and skill and the rush play and do we defend better without sacrificing offense? I think those are the teams you're seeing have some success right now, like Colorado or, you know, like New York or Tampa, um, the teams that can do it both ways at a high level. And, you know, still, you see they have elite goaltending. They have Vasilevsky and Shesterkin are two of the examples of guys I'm talking about who I think are going to, you know, change the game for goaltending or be the ones who are going to hopefully counteract what's been going on. Last one, um, because you mentioned those two names, Vasi and, and Igor. Uh, you had another one who's in that group uh, in Ilya Sorokin. Like you said, I, I'm not sure how close you got to watch him uh, during that year as he was making the adjustment, but we've seen this trend uh, towards, you know, we've seen a lot of success from goalies coming out of Russia. And I have some theories. I've talked to coaches that have worked over there. And um, But what, what do you see? Like what you, you're, you were in that sort of, you're over on that side in that, in that division. You got to see these guys on a regular basis. You got to see Ilya up front. Like what is it? Is it just a combination of skill and, and technique and everything and they just come over ready for it? Or what what is it about a guy? Because he was a guy that, frankly, when I look at the numbers, Corey, especially the second half of the season, the adjusted numbers, like outside of not making the playoffs, Ilya Sorokin should have been in the Vesna conversation as well. He was sensational. Absolutely. You know, and just having watched the team, you know, closely and from afar throughout the year, like the Islanders weren't the Islanders that we're used to in that sense. Right. We're like, yep. oh, it's boring, low event, very trot talky. They've been that in the past for sure, and there were times this year where they did that. But I think, you know, the grind of the last couple of years and just it just caught up to that group a little bit. And, you know, there were nights really and Barley just, you know, had to stand on their heads where they had to be unbelievable to get a point or to win or to keep them in the game. And again, it's not a knock on the guys. It's just the nature of the game. And some nights or some seasons, that's how it goes. But, you know, if people kind of point to, oh, well, he played for the Islanders, I don't think that was the, the, the truth this year. I thought they were excellent in um, as you said, I, I, I don't know what your theories are on the Russian guys. I've been trying to think of that myself. Yeah, because between, you know, you look at some of the best goalies in the league and they're all Russian. Again, I think watching those guys, it's just Sturkin and Ilya. It's, I think for me, it's like their body control. Like there's athleticism, but then there's the ability to harness it and keep your body under control and make the movements in, a, in an under control way while also having that speed and precision and explosion. Because there are guys who are incredibly athletic, but they're all over the place and there's no rhyme or reason or technique. And, you know, they can make some unbelievable saves, but then they put themselves in some pretty bad positions. So I think just watching Ilya, like his upper body barely moves. Like he is so patient and steady with it, but then his legs are able to rotate and spread out and explode and extend in a, in a moment's notice. So he's able to be that guy that I was talking about where he can hold on that first shot, but if the pass is made, he's able to open his hips and, and get moving laterally in a, in a split second while still, you know, holding his hands in the right spot and keeping his chest upright in case the shot does come. And I, I see that with Shisterkin as well and, and Vasilevsky as well, where they're, they're incredibly athletic and explosive without losing control of their edges and their positioning in their game. And I think that's, that's the ultimate combination, I think, of, of a goalie right now is to be able to have patience and explosion and, you know, um, being anticipatory while also not cheating, you know? <laughs> It's, and I have to tell myself that every night, like, don't cheat. Like, just don't cheat. You know, make sure you, you play the shooter. And if he makes that pass, like, get there as best you can. Hope your teammates will help you out. But, like, if you if you start cheating and start looking over your shoulder and looking who's coming and assuming the pass is going to get made, too, then you're going to get roasted by the shot. Because, as you said, these shooters are smart enough now where they can see that. They can manipulate your eyes or your body by, like I said, just a little opening of the blade. And then you start to shift your weight and they snap it by you because you, you, you got caught cheating. So um, I think, like I said, Ilya and, and Igor and, and those guys, they, they don't cheat a whole lot. They, they are able to hold their position while still 
have any athleticism to get across and make these unbelievable lateral saves and, and at times make it look easy, which is the hard part. Well, I was going to ask you one last one about what you still love about the game. We kind of touched on it earlier in terms of what, what kept you there and kept you playing when it, when, it, when it wasn't as easy as it had been in the past. But I think that last answer kind of told me. I mean, just listening to you talk about the state of goaltending and, and breaking it down like that, it sounds like that passion just hasn't disappeared at all for you, Corey. Yeah, you know, I, you know, again, I, I like a lot of things in life. You know, there's a lot of things that interest me and, and I'm passionate about. Um, you know, this just happens to be my job, which is, which is awesome. And it's been my job for a long time. And yeah, I think this year too, I just learned to not take it for granted. I know it's, it's like an old guy cliche, but as you said, we talked beforehand about kids, how it goes fast that one day, you know, they're four and six and you're their best buddy and doing everything with them. And then all of a sudden they're going off to college or university and, you know, they'll see you when they see you. Um, you learn to get perspective and not take it for granted. I think this year for me was, you know, I, I'm not above the American League. I know a lot of guys these days, it's sort of like a punishment or, or you know, oh man, I got to go down there and play like this stinks. And it's like, man, you're, you're playing pro hockey. Like you're, you're making money for a living doing this. Like this is fun. Like, it, you know, and, and sometimes the fun gets sucked out of the game. And that's when you have to, I think, take a step back and recognize that. And then for me, it, it was fun being around 20 year old kids and 22 year olds and stuff like that. And, them kind of looking to me and, and sort of saying like, all right, old guy, like what else, you know, what do you know? Or what, how, how about this guy? Or do you have any good stories? Or just, I think being in the room and, and trying to impart stuff on guys while not being, um, you know, sanctimonious and, and trying to be like, a, a know-it-all working with trainers, working with equipment guys, uh, working with these people. It, it's, it's fun. It's, it's a fun environment. It's, it's high pressure and it's intense and you're expected to produce and you can't lose sight of that. But I think it's easy to do that when you're enjoying yourself and just, enjoying coming to the rink every morning and not dreading or stressing or just sort of like, Oh man, like, you know, what's going to happen today or am I going to play well? And I think, you know, I kind of lost sight of that for a bit. And, and I think this year helped me get that back a little bit, maybe feel younger and, you know, just, just a different stage in my life and my career to, to really appreciate it and um, not take it for granted. Cause you said it goes fast, you know, like it was it seemed like yesterday we were in the cup finals with Vancouver and you sort of felt like the good times would never end. Like this is going to be like this forever. And you quickly learn that it's not. And, you know, for a handful of guys, it goes really, really well. And they accomplish everything they'd like to. But for a vast majority of us in pro sports, you don't necessarily do all the things you want to do or go out the way you wanted to go out. And I think as you get older, you recognize that and you try to make the best of it and, and control what you can and just really make it worthwhile. Because, again, your family goes through it, too. So if you're grumpy or you're hating it or you're miserable, um, it's not fun for them either because they're sacrificing time and energy and things to support you. and allow you to do that. And if you're not enjoying it or having fun with it, then what's the point, you know, let's not make them do this too. So I think just all these things kind of came together finally. And especially you said after COVID and the way the world's been the last couple of years to not take it too, too seriously, you know, be professional and work hard and do all the things that I love to do, but also just, you know, recognize the, you know, the forest for the trees and just sort of take advantage of, of playing pro hockey again at, at 36 years old, which very few people get to do. I love it. So well said. I'm hoping that you get to keep going. I know there's, like I said, the, the season you had, I know there's going to be opportunities out there. Uh, I hope you find one that fits for you and your family because uh, the game's better with Corey Schneider in it. Uh, not just because I get to have those conversations too, um, which I always enjoy. So Corey, thanks so much for your time yeah. today. Uh, it's great to catch up with you. Uh, it's great to have you still in the league still, and I look forward to catching up again in the near future. Yeah, thanks, Tim. I appreciate you having me on, and hopefully I didn't uh, use up all your data on that recorder by, uh, by talking so much. But uh, it's always fun to talk goaltending, and yeah, with someone like you who gets it and, and follows it closely, it, it makes it an easier conversation, so I, I always enjoy doing this. 
that's a guy that I could listen to all day. Like, and right. tomorrow, and then tomorrow, and then the next day, and part of the next day, and then I have to get back and do some other work, and then I'll come back to him. Like, I just love talking uh, hockey and listening to hockey stories about uh, from Corey. This is why, like, if and when he decides it's time, um, ESPN, TNT, get yep. him in a studio right away. We saw it with NHL Network um, in the playoffs one year. Remember when he did the breakdown right. on VH, like way back in the day when VH was popular? Like, his explanations, uh, the way he thinks the game, it's a big part of why he's had the career he's had, despite some health-related hiccups the past couple of seasons. And I really do believe that most of those are health-driven and a long recovery process and then as we said not a chance to play uh, you heard him talk about that through the pandemic which is really tough um but just thinks the game is such a high level there's a there's this as i said the the nhl is better with Corey schneider in it and if that's not going to be as a goaltender then get him in a suit and give him a microphone because he's brilliant and his ability to break the down and break down the position and what's happening around a goaltender is second to none yeah i, I i'm fascinated by it because he's so right in the middle of it and even after his playing days i think there's a genuine curiosity about the position uh, and passion about the position that he's going to keep up to date with all the the advances and the changes and uh, that go along with it and to be able to explain it so i'm right with you uh suit microphone desk let's go uh let's let's fire it up uh much the same way as what uh, what espn is doing right now with uh, Boucher, uh, with Boucher up there. I love that idea. And it's a long time coming where you have an actual goaltending expert as part of the broadcast uh, and breaking down the uh, the goaltending. Uh, over at uh, In Goal Mag, uh, what do we got going on, Hutch? And how do people, now that we've uh, invited everybody and talked about uh, the correspondence, how do people get in touch with us? Well, if people want to get in touch with us and share some thoughts with us and maybe uh, have us chit chat about something on a future podcast, of course podcast at ingolmag.com or leave a comment on one of the youtube videos or over at ingolmag.com lots of ways to get in touch with us uh just love hearing from people you know the big thing over at ingolmag.com really is the pete fry webinar or excuse me workshop which you can join by webinar from anywhere in the world or live in vancouver uh if you head over there and if you're an ingol premium annual member you'll be able to access a link that uh, lets you uh, get a discount on that workshop and uh, and then of course you got the usual sort of great content over at in goal including this week uh, a pro read from uh, alex nadelkovic and uh, he actually talks about angle versus depth something we've talked about on here before goalie coaches talk about but now we get to see it in the context of an actual save in an nhl game where he actually has to face down a superstar and make the decision for how he's going to play that backdoor threat so Alex does a great job breaking down all his pro reads. I think this is the seventh one we've published now. I think it's one of the best ways you can learn as a goaltender is to go over to In Goal Mag and check out our pro reads. Get a chance to see something, make your own judgment of how you might play it, and then hear from an NHL goaltender how they actually played it. Is there a tougher balancing act in our position than angle versus depth? Like on, on a on a save by save basis. It's yeah. not that tough. It's angle over depth there. I know, but you're uh, it is. But to there's times you can go somewhere in between, right? Like yeah. no, you, like nobody makes a movement in an L or a J. They don't gain angle and then gain depth. There's always some judgment there in between, isn't there? Um, if you had to prioritize one, yeah, you get to the middle of the net, even if you have to play it like Mike Smith, Darren, 
yeah. um, you still get a great chance to make a save. But uh, choosing that or being able to gain that depth the way Igor Shesterkin does off his post, which is absolutely otherworldly, it's, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating conversation. Woody oversimplified that. You guys are talking about taking depth, about giving it up. How do you mm-hmm. give up depth without costing yourself angle off rush? Most mm-hmm. goalies give up angle as they retreat with depth and have a very tough time staying square as plays come down the wing. So um, it's something it's something that we see a lot in the pre-scouts get targeted. Uh, we saw it a lot with Jacob Markstrom actually get targeted that low far side just over the pads because... You know, he changed how he retreated. He comes back in a straight line, and as he retreats and the play gets deeper, he's more and more off angle. He doesn't turn and square on it. So, and that's a common thing. That's not picking him up, you know, out from anyone else. But you know, it's not always about just inside out movement. A lot of it is outside in as well. The other one that's interesting that you can do a little bit of uh, geometry and take a look at is the more depth you take, the more a mistake costs you. Um, I know we have this impression that the further out you come, the more of the net you close off. And of course, that's absolutely true. But the further out you are, any movement in that puck um, by a shooter, perhaps dragging it before shooting, or any mistake you make in terms of your angle uh, gets actually amplified and opens up more of the net. So it's a it's a fun little battle. I'm glad this is coming about now and not uh, in 1986 when Patrick Waugh broke in, because one of the great highlights of all time is him inside the circle making a glove safe and and holding it up and he never would have done that if uh, all this would have been around then yeah no kidding it would have been over the glass probably but <laughs> I, I remember teaching my kid when he was really really young like we're talking seven or eight years old and he went to a tryout and the minor hockey coach who was running the tryout had brought some like triple a bantam players or something to shoot on them and he was terrified you could tell he was terrified um, a lot of those kids were. And I said, look, you just got to play it like we did in 1970. He's like, what are you talking about? Come out at them as far as you possibly can. The only place that puck could hit you was in the pads and you're not getting yeah. hurt. That's so, perfect. Yeah. That, that's And that's absolutely right. That's uh, exactly why we did That's a big reason why we did it. It wasn't just trying to fill the net. Beautiful. Uh, we'll explain the 1970s to Woody uh, off there. Uh, I'm Googling them. I, I was just going <laughs> to say, maybe this is why the save percentage was... Yeah, the average save percentage when Patrick broke in with the Montreal Canadiens in 1985-86 was hmm, 874. <laughs> and, and that was uh, that was not bad. If you were a 900, that's not. There you go. Uh, we got to fly. Uh, thanks to Corey Schneider. Uh, thanks to uh, Cam as well over at the Hockey Shop. And thanks to you for listening. Uh, keep those uh, interactions coming. Send us a note. Uh, tell us what you're up to. Uh, what's your summer training plan like? Uh, give us an idea of what's going on in your world on Ingle Radio, the podcast. <laughs>